Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. I told you I was going to give you a break from the blood we had to walk through this whole year. So I did give you two heist stories the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist, and the Great Plymouth mail truck robbery. And again, I will reiterate my offer to act as a middleman in returning those paintings. There's still a $10 million reward available. My fee is a mere $2 million. I believe it's worth it. If you know who has the paintings, give me a call and we'll work through it. I'm already looking at boats because I'm so very confident that's going to happen. All right, guys, you had that brief respite from the blood and violence of our previous episodes with those two heist stories, and they were very good. We had good ratings on them, and I appreciate that. But we're back at it. This is Boston Confidential, and this is what we do. We do Boston True Crime. And I'm going to give you the staple of Boston True Crime right now. And it's a story that not everybody knows the details of. Even I didn't know the details of it. I know you're completely shocked because I know everything about Boston crime, right? But this story involves 13 homicides, rapes, actually a series of rapes, confessions, recantations, prison escape, and again, serial murder. Boston Confidential is covering the case of the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. This case is much more intriguing, and it's also very brutal. So I'm going to give you a warning now. This case involves crimes against women, horrific crimes, in the worst ways possible. So that's your warning. I think everybody knows a little bit about the Boston Strangler, and that was due to a 1968 movie, the Boston Strangler with Tony Curtis. And in 1968, the movies could not portray half of what Albert DeSalvo did to his victims. It's just an insane case. Prison escapes, confessions. And what people really don't remember about Albert DeSalvo in the Boston Strangler case, he was never arrested for those murders. All right, guys, to set the stage a little bit, Boston was an entirely different place. It was much smaller, a little more homey than you see now. It was 1962, and the free love 60s probably wouldn't begin until the Vietnam War heated up in 1965. So Boston was kind of still stuck in the 50s, right? And something strange that occurred to me when I was reading this book that I'll talk about later you could live almost anywhere in the city of Boston as long as you had really any type of job, administrative assistant, bookkeeper, 
it wasn't super expensive like it is today. Like you couldn't live in the back bay. You couldn't live in the Fenway section of Boston today unless you have a high-end job or several roommates. But it wasn't like that in the 50s and 60s in Boston. I'm going to go through the victims of the Boston Strangler, and they had just regular jobs, but they were living on Beacon Hill, Commonwealth Avenue. Again, today, you just simply couldn't do that. I know there's still a lot of students in the area and stuff like that, but the rents are absolutely astronomical. But do some research and check out the rents from the 50s and 60s in that area, and you could actually live there and make a living, and you just go to work, you know, downtown Boston. Another thing people don't understand about that time is not everybody had cars like they do today. So most people took the subway, and if you lived in these areas in the Fenway or Back Bay, you'd just take the bus downtown. That's where most of the work was centered in that time. Another difference between now and the early 60s in Boston People were a little more trusting of their neighbor, and they could be because direct personal crime wasn't as rampant as it is today. So people would fall for these ruses, you know, and they were these door-to-door salesmen that'd sell vacuums full of brushmen, and the Avon lady would come to the house and sell the lady of the house perfumes, bath salts, and all this. So It wasn't unheard of to have people knocking at your door a few times a week trying to sell you things. It was, you know, numerous door-to-door salesmen. And that would certainly come into play later. But also something you need to think about, law enforcement from a scientific basis wasn't where we are today. And forensics was almost non-existent. They did have fingerprints. Not a hell of a lot more than that, though. What they relied on, detectives in Boston and the surrounding areas, was their knowledge of the local criminal underbelly, if you will. And they did a pretty good job for those days. I think crime was somewhat less than it is today, but they depended more on individual police officers than forensic science, I think, in those days. I know I had just mentioned the movie The Boston Strangle with Tony Curtis. I can't really give that a full thumbs up. I guess it was moderately entertaining for the time. I believe the movie came out in 1968 starring Tony Curtis, who was a big movie star at the time. Good-looking guy, good actor and all that. But that was based on a book I had just read to prepare for this case, ironically called The Boston Strangler by... Gerald Frank, and I got mine on Amazon, and I'm sure you can too. The book is pretty good. I'd probably give it about three and a half stars. You should check it out if you're interested in this case. I did take a lot of the research from that, and there's a ton of information all over the place if you want to look it up as well. So I know I mentioned there was 13 victims of homicide. There were many more victims of rape. That's something I didn't know about until I read Gerald Frank's book, The Boston Strangler. Just a bit of an aside, the movie, The Boston Strangler with Tony Curtis, eh, I don't know, not so great, not a favorite of mine. But what I didn't know, come this December, December 2021, there's going to be a remake of the movie starring Kira Knightley. I hope it's better than 
its predecessor. And I think it will be because more can be talked about, discussed, and shown on television. But it is a gruesome case. And let me get to it. Let me get to these poor 13 victims. One of the problems with this case is the victims were kind of spread out geographically. It happened in Boston, several in Boston, two in Lawrence, and then there's one or two of them in Lynn. And I'm going to give you all the victims' names in order so we can go through that. But it was so spread out geographically, the Boston police had a hard time connecting one to another. In those days, you wouldn't know about a murder in Lynn, Massachusetts, if you're a Boston police detective. In Lawrence, Massachusetts was an hour away. You might never hear about what's going on up there. And serial homicides did happen, but they're rare. They're still rare today. So it was just a different time in law enforcement. And one of the things you could do to get away with stuff was just leave the area, conduct your crime, and leave. Crazy, right? One of the things I find strange about this case is the brutal nature of what Albert DeSalvo did is kind of lost in time. They call him the Boston Strangler. He's much more than that. He was a brutal rapist who'd tie his victims up and he'd stick items inside his female victims. And he is just an absolute lunatic. And that's who the police thought they were looking for. They went to the lunatic asylums, they called them back in the day, mental hospitals, I guess, and combed all their records. They brought all their detectives in from all their units. Who could have done this? Who's the craziest sex offender you know? The term serial killer hadn't even been coined yet. Sex offender, I think, hadn't been established either. But the cops were real world people, right? But I just don't think they had ever faced anything like this. It's once in a lifetime case. This was like the crime of the century and it was headline news in Boston every day when it became established that there was one person conducting these murders. Or at a minimum, the murders were connected. I don't think they got to the one person theory quickly until Albert DeSalvo. But man, it's just insane. And my heart goes out to the victims. I think the victims have been lost in this as sometimes happens in large cases that hit the press so hard. But Let's get to it. It's June 1962, and this nightmare would extend from 1962 through 1964. And let me tell you something. The women of Boston were terrified. They were taking all the dogs out of the local pounds. In those days, you could just go down and grab a dog that had been taken up by the city pound and take it home. So all the dogs were taken out. The hardware stores, locks were being purchased. Boston was never a heavy gun city. But I can imagine if you had a revolver in the house, you'd be putting it near your bedside. And a lot of these women, women were starting to live alone. They were joining the workforce. They were coming home in the evenings. And I got to tell you, they were frightened. They were frightened in the city of Boston. And guys, they'd remain frightened for almost two years. This brings us up to June 14, 1962, at a third-floor apartment at 77 Gainsborough Street in Boston's Fenway District. 
And if you're familiar with that area, it's a beautiful area close to Fenway Park. And now it is astronomical. But again, back in those days, a regular working stiff could really live anywhere in Boston. And Anna Elsa Slessers, S-L-E-S-E-R-S. She was 56 years old, again, had lived on Gainsborough Street for a very long time. And she answered her door. And, you know, like I said, in those days, you got a lot of knocks at the door. And there'd be men standing there trying to sell you stuff. The vacuum cleaner salesman, they called him full of brush men. The Avon person, which was generally a man selling perfumes and a whole litany of other stuff. Door-to-door sales was big. So I know I mentioned Miss Seltzer's. I'm just going to call her Anna because I'm going to butcher that name all the way through it. But Anna had opened her door, and it was a fatal mistake. And she was strangled. I guess this is the Boston Strangling case. That's par for the course. But if you look at photographs of this first victim, strangling it was more than strangling. He wrapped some type of garrote around her neck. I don't know if it was a scarf or something else, but it was so deeply embedded in her neck. Man, my heart just went out to this woman. I know I said she was 56 years old. She looked about 10 years older. She was very grandmotherly. She had been raped and she had been sexually assaulted with an unknown inanimate object. And this was a vicious crime scene, guys. And the detectives believe she was killed probably the night before, but she was discovered on June 14th, 1962. Then that takes us to Mary Mullen. She was 85 and she had actually died of a heart attack. And people didn't even associate this with what would become to be known as the Boston Strangler. She had died of a heart attack and she was 85. So it was kind of, they thought this was natural causes. It was not. DeSavo later admitted to this and that's how she got put on the list here. And he said she had a heart attack when he was getting ready to rape her. So maybe that's a better ending. I'm not sure. But make no mistake, DeSavo was responsible for this incident as well. And this one occurred on June 28th, 1962. A few days later, June 30th, Nina Frances Nichols was found on Commonwealth Avenue. Her nylon stockings had been used to strangle her and were found around her neck. It was a brutal scene and it was reminiscent of Anna's killing, the first killing on Gainsborough Street. All right, so this was June 30th, and weather forecasters were predicting a terrific 4th of July coming up. In the afternoon of the 30th, Chester Stedman, president of the Boston Bar Association, telephoned his sister, Nina Nichols, who was a physiotherapist, but he receives no answer, and it's odd, and he contacts the building superintendent, whom he was also friendly with, I believe. And she is found in a pink flannel robe, which was torn from the waist down with two stockings tied around her neck. And she had been sexually assaulted with a wine bottle. 
Now, the police are starting to put this all together, at least in terms of Anna's murder and now Nina's. Mary Mullen, I had just said, hadn't been added to the list. She was 85 and died of a heart attack. So there's two homicides in relatively the same area of the Fenway. So the cops are starting to get nervous now. What's going on? And the strangulation, I can't really relay it to you how brutal it was. The photographs show it, and it's just a horrible attack. Then he goes ahead and sexually assaults her with a wine bottle. Man, the police see this, and they say, this is absolutely insane. And, man, you got to feel for the cops in this one. You really do. But okay, it goes on. Now, as nutty as this story is, on the same day, June 30th in Lynn, an upstairs neighbor of Helen Blake hears what she thinks is Helen cleaning in her apartment. It was not. Helen Blake was 65 years old, and she lived on Newhall Street in Lynn. Now, Nina Nichols was discovered on the 30th, but the police believe she was killed maybe a day or so prior to that. But Helen Blake, they believe, was killed actually on June 30th. Helen Blake was looking forward to retirement. She was 65, and I had mentioned she was a nurse. She was found face down in her apartment with her silk stockings used as a garrote. Her bra was also used to strangle her. She had been raped and obviously murdered. So this is where the press seems to pick the ball up in this case. They start putting it together, and they start calling this guy the silk stalking murderer, the phantom. They also start calling this killer the mad triple killer. And this one happened in Lynn, so I think if it wasn't for the press, I don't know if the police would have picked up on this because, again, you kind of cloistered in your own area, worried about your own city. And Lynn was about five, six miles north of Boston. So the next killing attributed to the Boston Strangler was Ida Irgar, I-R-G-A, and she was 75. And people were wondering, is the elderly being targeted in this? Because it just seems so crazy. And to sexually molest and rape an elderly woman it's kind of unheard of. It's still unheard of today. And man, the police were baffled, and so was the press, really. So Ida's murder happened on a very nice day in August, August 19th, 62. It was 84 degrees by noon, a nice breeze coming in. But the family of Ida is absolutely alarmed. She lives alone on Gove Street in Boston's Beacon Hill neighborhood. And again, this is a high-class neighborhood, and I think Ida had a little bit of money. So she lived on Beacon Hill, and I think that was always very expensive. But her family was extremely worried. She wasn't answering the phone. A cousin finally goes over to the apartment building and actually has to climb in the fifth-floor apartment window. And what she finds is her aunt on her back, pajamas torn, absolutely torn off her body, and her legs held apart by two chairs. She'd been strangled by a pillowcase and sexually assaulted. And this body appears to have been posed for whomever walked in the door, as I believe her legs were spread wide open 
for that type of greeting for whomever entered the room. And again, don't forget, Ida was 75 years old. Now, this is where the press starts naming this prowler, this killer, right? They call him the Phantom. That seems to take hold for quite a while in Boston. They call him the Phantom. And the police do suspect that he's simply knocking on the door. But they don't reach out to the public quite yet and say, don't answer your door, report strangers in your building or in your neighborhood. Okay, so now it is August 21st, and Jane Sullivan, 67, who resided in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood on Columbia Road, was found murdered in her apartment. And she was a night nurse at the Longwood Hospital in Boston's hospital district, and she was extremely well-liked in her neighborhood and at work. And she was found partially in the bathtub, and I believe she had been drowned. Her underwear had been taken down to her ankles, exposing her buttocks. Again, this perpetrator is posing his victims, and that indicates another level of crazy, I think. She had also been strangled by two nylon stockings. And it was at this time, I believe, that the Boston police the Lynn police, they start getting together and they talk about developing a task force to take care of this madman. And guys, just let me get through all of the victims and what happened to them. And I'll tell you about the investigation as it goes, but it's just so time consuming to get through 13 victims. I want to give you all their information and what happened to them in one fell swoop. Then we'll get on to the investigation and Albert DeSalvo and his heinous upbringing. All right, so people in Boston are kind of breathing a sigh of relief. It's now December, and the Boston Strangler, or the Phantom as the newspaper, I call him, hasn't struck. But on December 5th, 1962, that would change, and it would change pretty drastically. It was an unseasonably warm day, about 40 degrees on December 5th on Huntington Avenue in Boston. And Sophie Clark, age 20, was found in her apartment, murdered as well. By day, Sophie Clark was a hospital technician, and at night she went to school at the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology on Beacon Hill. Returning home, her roommate found Sophie on her back. Her legs were spread with a garter belt on, black stockings, and a blue floral housecoat. Her housecoat and her bra were torn, and she was strangled with her stockings and petticoat. And it was a brutal scene. There were stains found on the carpet nearby, and those stains were later identified as semen. So panic has taken hold of Boston by this time, and there's nothing the police can do to stop it. The press is all over the case. This sells newspapers. The word serial killer hadn't been really coined yet, and that probably wouldn't come until the 60s or 70s, I think. But man, Boston, the women of Boston were absolutely afraid. And that brings us up to December 31st, 1962. It was the coldest New Year's Eve since 1918 in the city. It's four degrees below zero. Patricia Bissett lived on Park Drive in Boston, and she worked for a engineering company in Kenmore Square, and she 
didn't show up for work and her boss called her janitor at the building and he found her, unfortunately, in bed in a bra in a house coat with a sheet and blanket pulled to her neck and smothered. She'd been strangled with four articles of clothing and she had been sexually molested as well. It is believed that she had been sexually posed by the perpetrator as well. And it came out later that Miss Bissett, she was just a young kid, 23 years old. She graduated from Middlebury College and she had returned there. She was had been the editor of the yearbook and there was a party there over the previous Christmas holiday. And she was visiting with friends and they were asking her, you know, are you afraid you live right in that area where the Boston stranglings are happening? She says, no, no, I'm not afraid of the Boston strangler. She had roommates and all this, so she felt a little bit more protected. Unfortunately, she was not. And I think I should interject here. The police are kind of baffled here because the age ranges of these victims is just so wide. This would be explained later, but for the time being, the police were totally baffled, and it led them to think that maybe this wasn't the same guy. And don't forget that forensics was absolutely in its infancy. I know I said before, I think the only thing we really had was fingerprints. I think with blood, you could type it. I think you could get a blood type from semen as well. But I think that's about the extent of forensic sciences in the 1960s. So after Patricia Bissett's killing, the incidents just stopped and Boston prayed that this was over. That was not to be. Mary Brown, age 69, was found in March 1963 after a hell of a break. Everybody thought this was over, but it comes flying back into the news. Mary Brown was 69 years old, and she resided on Park Ave in Lawrence. And this was one of the bloodiest crime scenes attributed to Albert DeSalvo. Mary was found with a sheet pulled up to her neck in her apartment. She lived on the first floor. Actually, the sheet was covered all the way up to her head. She had been raped, strangled, beaten about the head, stabbed directly in her breasts. They seemed to really be targeting her breasts with a kitchen fork that was also left in her chest, guys. This guy's an absolute animal. When DeSalvo would later confess, he identified certain items within the apartment. The kitchen faucet, he identified that correctly as being brass. And the kitchen radio was a strange color, and he got that right. The kitchen radio was yellow. And he was kind of bragging at this point by the time he got to Mary Brown. And the detective said, you know, that must have been a bloody sheet you put up overhead. And he starts laughing, oh, yeah, it was. DeSalvo had no remorse for what he had done for any of it. The police were in a complete panic, and the book I had read on the subject describes at about this point, or maybe just before, that the police start looking hard at psychics and all this. They just really had nothing, guys. There was no forensics. They didn't really understand how he got into these apartments, but it would later come out, he'd just talk his way in. Let me get on with the victims, and then I'll tell you about Mr. DeSalvo. 
The next victim in this case is Beverly Sammons, S-A-M-A-N-S, and she was 23 years old, and she lived on University Road in Cambridge. I believe that's by MIT, but I'm not entirely sure. This is May 6, 63. She was found nude, stabbed, strangled with her hands tied behind her back. Two silk scarves and nylon stockings were knotted around her neck. And this was brutal. She'd been stabbed 16 times, four times in the neck, 12 in the chest and the breast area, and five times in the left lung. A detective went on to say, this could not have been done by a person of sound mind. It was a bloodbath, this killing. And man, just looking forward, I know this guy's never arrested for the murders. And it just, it galls me, really. So guys, as spring turns into summer again, the whole area is holding their breath, hoping this is over. It is not. Come the fall, September 8th, 63, another woman was murdered. Her name was Evelyn Corbin. She was age 58 and lived in Salem, Massachusetts, which is about 30 minutes north of Boston. Miss Corbin worked on the production line at Sylvania. I believe it was in Salem or in Lynn, I'm not sure. And she had a day off and she had breakfast with her neighbor, Flora. And she left breakfast to go get dressed to attend mass at St. Teresa's. And after mass, they were planning to meet back up for a light lunch. And her neighbor, finding no response after mass, unlocks the door and finds Corbin draped over her bed, her right leg dangling toward the floor. Around her neck are two stockings. A third is wrapped around her left ankle, and a fourth is on the bed. She had basically been tied up and raped. A police lieutenant is asked if her death could be linked to the unsolved stranglings. The woman's dead, the stockings around her neck. That's similarity enough for me, he says. So Albert DeSalvo seems to take some time off. Evelyn Corbin was found September 8th, 63. But by November 23rd, 63, everybody again is hoping this is over. It's not. It's the day before Thanksgiving. And Howard Johnson is offering Thanksgiving dinner at their place for $2.95. That's how far this goes back. First, there's a Howard Johnson's and a complete Thanksgiving dinner is under three bucks, right? I predict I'm going to get some emails asking what Howard Johnson's was. I'll answer them in the email. I'm not going to talk about it right here. Let's get through the victims first. Joanne Graff is found on the 23rd, November 23rd, 1963. So the landlord goes to Joanne's apartment looking to collect the rent, and there's no response. Her friends later try the house in the telephone, and then Joanne doesn't make it to church the next day, and her body is discovered. Two nylon stockings and a leotard are knotted around her neck, and it was an especially brutal murder and sexual assault. She was a Sunday school teacher at the local Lutheran church, was a quiet girl and kept to herself. And again, all of these victims are completely innocent. All they did, guys, was answer their door. Imagine that. The next victim in this string of madness was Mary Sullivan. She lived on Charles Street in Boston, and she was 19 years old. 
So Mary Sullivan's two roommates returned from work at Filene's. That was a famous Boston department store at the time. And they see that Mary is still in bed and they think she may be sick, so they allow her to sleep in. The two other roommates start preparing dinner and they're kind of kibitzing. They put some music on the radio. And after a while, they're trying to wake Mary up. The two roommates pull the covers down and they discover that Mary Sullivan, age 19, is in fact dead. She had passed away relatively recently. The two roommates become hysterical and a passing motorcycle cop hears the screams and he runs to their aid and he discovers that Mary Sullivan was in fact deceased. Mary had been raped and she had two scarves, her own scarves, wrapped around her neck and that was used to strangle her. Mary had grown up on Cape Cod and graduated from Bonstable High and she loved Cape Cod but she wanted to see the big city and she found a bunch of roommates and they became fast friends and they ended up moving to the Child Street apartment together and Mary Sullivan would become the Boston Strangler's 13th and final victim. All right, guys, those are the 13 victims of the Boston Strangler. And I think I'm going to leave you there pretty soon. I, I wanted to honor those victims by giving you each their names and how they died. I didn't want to skip over anybody. We're going to do a part two on this case. And what you need to know, what's going to be coming from that episode is something I didn't know in this case. Just prior to the homicides, there was a string of rapes, serial rapes. This person who broke into these houses dressed as a workman in like a green overall suit, he'd go to the building's front foyer and look for a woman's name on the doorbell. And he'd get a toolbox, he's got his green overalls on, ring the bell and say, there's a gas leak, or the landlord wants me to check for a leak behind your sink. So these were serialized and planned rapes. And guess who did those guys? Albert DeSalvo. If he could have been stopped during that time, maybe these 13 women would have lived their lives normally. Luckily, some sharp-witted detectives remembered that case going forward while they were investigating the Boston Strangling case. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The police didn't crack this case. Albert DeSalvo went to them. The police didn't go to Albert DeSalvo. Also, guys, in the next episode, we'll get into what made Albert DeSalvo this slithering animal. But I'm going to leave you there now, guys. And I'll get back for episode two on the Boston Strangler case next week. See you on the flip side.